Let's hear God's word from 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 1. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire. And they had taken captive the women and those who were with them from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. And David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. <clears throat> and David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the six other men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where they stayed, uh, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and his four hundred men, for two hundred stayed behind, who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Besor. And they found an Egyptian in the field, and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind, because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Carathites in the territory which belongs to Judah, and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to be my God, that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped, except four hundred young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything, which they had taken from them. David recovered all. And then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, This is David's spoil. Now David came to the two hundred men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Besor. <clears throat> so they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. And all the wicked and the worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. 
who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was, from that day forward, he made a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came near Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To those who were in Bethel, those who were in Ramoth of the south, those who were in Jatir, those who were in Aroer, those who were in Shifmoth, those who were in Eshtemoah, those who were in Rakal, those who were in the cities of the Jearmaelites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in Horma, those who were in Korashan, and those who were in Athak, those who were in Hebron, and to the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. <clears throat> Amen. Well, last time <clears throat> we resumed the story of David. Remember, we had a, an interruption there with Saul and the necromancer. <clears throat> and due to David's fear, he fled to Philistia and settles in Ziklag and fought against the Philistines and the Israelite enemies in the south. And so because David did not clearly indicate to Achish that he did not fight against Israel, Achish expected David to join the Philistines when they went to attack Israel. But by God's good providence, David is rescued from his dilemma when the Philistines, uh, Philistine lords objected to David's participation. David, though, continued his half-truths with Achish, and Achish is continually being fooled by David's at least halfway loyalty. And so this life of fear, this life of lies on his part, mixed with godliness and faith, characterized David during this time here at the end of the book. And so as David's sin led to his dilemma in chapters 28 and 29, so we see another dilemma caused by David's lack of faith. As David's faith and obedience led to success and blessing for the Philistines and Israel, so now we will see David's faith leading to blessings here in this chapter. Do you see the mixed bag here put together in this chapter? Well, all of this, of course, ultimately, is because of God's grace that any blessings came upon David. And that, too, will be made plain here uh, in this chapter and even tonight. So <clears throat> we begin here, again, after this um, interlude with Saul, coming back to David, and now we continue where we left off last time, where the Philistine lords told uh, Akish, basically, David can't come, and Akish says, basically, go back to Ziklag. So verse 1 then, now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire. All right, well, <clears throat> again, it, we're, we're flowing out of what we ended with last time, and so David and uh, his men head back, but notice because David and his men were with the Philistines up in the north, up there toward Aphek, 
Now, southern Philistia and southern Judah is vulnerable. Now, it's possible that the Amalekites just came at the right time, and they just happened not to be there, and they had free reign there in the south. It is more likely that they were watching the movements of the Philistines and David and realized they had an opportunity and attacked all this southern area, all the area that David was protecting. So let's turn then and look at verse 2. It says, <clears throat> notice how we're continuing the sentence, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. And so David and his 600 men had obeyed. They had come back to Ziklag like they were told, okay? but they get there and basically everything's gone. Now think about this. It took them Two days of journeying, right? They left in the morning, and so it was a full day, and then they had another full day, and it was on the third day that they get back to Ziklag. And so whenever that was, they arrived, presumably it's middle of the day or something like that. <clears throat> and as they're getting closer, they're likely seeing smoke. As I was preparing for this, I was reminded, um, it was a few years ago now, maybe, uh, there was a big, thick pillar of, of uh, smoke rising up uh, over the hillside. I was coming back from something, and I thought it looked like it was coming from the McBride's area. So I called Jason. I said, is everything okay? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's something else. It's the neighbor, you know, whatever. Uh, but you can imagine that they were seeing the smoke, and they picked up their pace. They're like, hey, this looks like this is home. And so at some point, they come to Ziklag on this third day. Now, notice here that we know what's going on, but David and his men don't know yet. Even after they get to Ziklag, they likely do not know who did it and what exactly had happened. Okay? Maybe the Amalekites left a calling card. Maybe they did some things that reminded David of the Amalekites. Uh, we don't know. And they probably didn't know at this point, but we know. And so notice how we're given a, uh, you know, an inside uh, information here at the beginning. And here then in verse 2, we are also told that the women and children, small and great, which may have included some older uh, folk, maybe some of the parents, or maybe some injured soldiers, or something to that effect, uh, they were left behind, but hey, they're not there. Now we know None of them are killed. But David and his men are thinking, okay, well, there's no bodies around, so they're not killed right now. But they didn't know if some would be killed later. They probably suspected, since there are no bodies, that these people would be sold into slavery. Okay? But again, they didn't know that. We know that. So um, we'll pick up with that thought in verse 3 in a moment. So, but let me, let me pause here and have us reflect on what's happening. Last time, you might remember, we went through all the passage, and then we looked at the main points. Let's bring it in here at this point. David is attacked by the people he attacked. Right? Remember in chapter 27, he attacked uh, the Amalekites, among other people. <clears throat> he raided them. And so, um, surely, this is 
retaliation, at least to some degree. Okay? The Amalekites are trying to pay David, David back. And so you, you'll hear many commentators, even conservative ones, say, well, look, this is happening to David because he should not have attacked them in chapter 27. And so this is payback, and, and this is an indication of David's sin. It was his fault, and that's why this is happening. Well, you remember the argument that I made in chapter 27, that I think that David was not in error to attack the Amalekites. Remember what happened in Exodus 17 and all those kind of things. I think David is finishing what Joshua started and finishing what Saul failed to do. David is doing something unique. This is not something for us to emulate, but David basically is finishing the conquest. And so what David did there was okay. In fact, maybe even directed by God. So if we're going to say that this is David's fault, that's not the reason. It's not because he attacked the Amalekites. I do think that this is David's fault, that this is a consequence for his actions. But it's the actions of chapter 27, verse 1. And that's where we see David lived by fear. He was afraid of Saul. He was tired of the chase, and he didn't trust in God's promises anymore. And so he left and went to Philistia. And so what's happening here? All of his family taken, all the family of his men, all the stuff they had was taken or burned. That was David's fault. This is God's punishment for David living by fear and these half-truths. It isn't just chapter 28 and 29 where David's in this hard place. Is he going to have to fight against Israel? That was a consequence of his sin, but so too is this. If David had lived by faith from the beginning, he very likely would have been in southern Judah, and the Amalekites would not have done this. They would not have been able to do this. Now, maybe they would have attacked southern Philistia, but David would have protected southern Judah. But he's not there because he, he's in this rock and hard place situation. He has to go all the way up to Aphek and there's nobody there to protect these southern areas. Even if David had gone to Philistia, but then was honest with Achish and told Achish, yes, I'm attacking the enemies of Philistia, but I'm also attacking the enemies of Israel. I'm not attacking Israel. If he would have been forthright in that way and Achish allowed him to stay in Ziklag and do, so doing. Then, when the Amalekites attacked, he would have been there, right? He would have been there to protect all of his family, all of his friends uh, here with the, the people of his men and so on and so forth. But because David had lived by fear, again, chapter 27, verse 1 is governing all of this section here. That meant the southern Judah and southern Philistia were vulnerable. His family and his men's families were at risk. Do you see the principle here? Isn't it pretty straightforward? When we sin, when we live by fear and we do not live by faith, it leads to other problems. And sometimes those problems affect those that we know and love, not just me, but other people. Maybe our family, maybe our classmates or coworkers or whatever it is. But you see the point. If we're going to live by fear, it's going to lead to problems in one way or another. And that's exactly what we see with David. 
But think also of this point. If David had been living by faith in chapter 27 and so on, and if he would have stayed in southern Judah and not gone to Philistia, but let's say David made an excursion up to En Gedi or something, and he was, he was 20 miles away from all this activity. Do you think the Amalekites would have been successful? I think the answer would probably be no. Because doesn't God protect his people? Think of it this way. Godliness results in blessings. Sin and ungodliness results in curses. Now you think, well, there are always exceptions. Well, yeah, that's true. Okay, but didn't this sound a bit like Psalm 1? Okay, the righteous walk in the ways of the Lord and God blesses them. The wicked go their own way and do their own thing and it results in curses. Now, we've seen this distinction. David is not like Saul. Okay, yes, but David's acting like Saul in certain ways here. And so... Um, I think we could say that even if David were not in southern Judah, but had been living by faith, God would have continued to protect David and all of his friends and his family and his men and all these sort of things like he'd been doing up through chapter 26. Are you following the point here? The main point again is, are you living by faith or living by fear? If you're going to live by fear, you're going to have problems. Okay. And so the hardship that David faces is his fault for living with fear and half-truths. And it was 16 months in the making. We, too, often face hardships for the exact same reasons. We're afraid. And so we do not trust God. Maybe there are financial problems, maybe it's relationship problems, maybe it's health issues, maybe it's the death of a loved one, maybe it's bad rulers ruling over us, which we clearly have. The church has been living in fear for decades. It's no surprise that things are going the way they are in our culture. But remember, when God brings hardships against his people, yes, it's because he's upset. But ultimately, it's for our good, is it not? God brings consequences for our sin, for not trusting him, but for the purpose of turning us back to him so that we will look to him in faith and not in fear, so that we will walk by faith and not by sight. God does this like a good, loving parent, not because he enjoys spanking the children, so to speak, but because He wants us to do what is good and right. And so God sometimes brings hard providences against us because of our sin. But it's not because he's a masochist. It's because he wants us to turn away from our sin. Remember the message to Judges? The whole book of Judges is basically making that point. Now sometimes God patiently waits for us to see the light and turn to him. But when we get used to our sin, when we become content with our mediocre faith, when we become comfortable with our life of fear and lies, then he turns up the heat. And he says, now come on. Hey, <clears throat> remember me? 
Hey, you remember what living by faith is all about? And it can be difficult. Sometimes our family can be taken from us or other severe things. But God, in the end, is bringing us back to himself. And so what's happening here in this chapter is connected to chapter 27. And what's happening here is another connection back to the book of Judges. We've seen this a number of times here in 1 Samuel. So, here's one of the broad points of this chapter. And so look for God's hard providences to teach you to turn back to him in faith. But there's more here. So let's look then at verse 3. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Now, <clears throat> that much they could tell. No bodies around. They knew it was, they were taken captive. Obviously, things are burned. Okay. Um, but, you know, why is verse 3 here? I mean, in one sense, you can see the progression of thought in verses 1 and 2, and now verse 3. But on the other hand, verse 3 is basically repeating things that we already saw in verses 1 and 2. Why? Whenever, uh, this morning we uh, returned to looking at some of the genres of scripture in Sunday school. And uh, I, I mentioned that we had talked about narrative before. Well, here's one of those things. In narrative, what is emphasized and what is not emphasized? You don't really need verse 3. So why is it there again? Well, I think it's because of what happens in verse 4. This is a big deal. I mean, can you imagine coming home from work or school or whatever and your family's gone? Don't just sit there comfortably and think, oh, yeah, this is a nice story. I mean, can you imagine coming home and everybody's gone? I think this is probably why... It is repeated. And remember, they would have been safer in Judah than they were here in Philistia. But David had lived by fear. So then verse 4, Then David and his people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. Remember, they don't yet know really what happened. They probably had a few clues, but they don't really know what happened. They probably are assuming that their uh, families are lost forever, never to be recovered. Now think about this. Okay? They have to leave Ziklag and go all the way up to Aphek. Then they have to return from Aphek and come back to Ziklag. It took them three days to get back, or at least a portion of three. You figure it took them at least that long to get up there. I mean, it's quite possible the Amalekites took all their families a week prior. Who knows where they'd be? They could be halfway across the Mediterranean at this point, sold as slaves. They could be all the way down in Africa by this point, sold as slaves. They don't know this. And so, quite understandably, they're very upset. They cry until they can't cry anymore. So verse 5, And David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Again, you didn't really need to have this verse, did you? You assume that's going to happen. 
Notice the emphasis. David's really at fault here. Now, yes, you would emphasize David anyway because he's the leader, but David led them into sin, and so even his two wives are gone. And you remember that clue also. David had multiplied wives. You're not supposed to do that. Even that was sinful. So verse 6. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. <clears throat> hey, it's bad enough that you come home and your house has been ransacked. Maybe it's on fire. All your loved ones are gone. But then the people you thought were going to help you now want to kill you. Now, it does make you wonder, did they start suspecting that David had led them wrongly and now that they're in Philistia? Or are they just so grieved that you got to blame somebody? Whatever the case, you might say that David is finally at rock bottom. Maybe he was thinking, hey, you know, I'm doing pretty well here. And kind of these half-truths to Akish, things are going okay. You know, uh, not anymore. How many times do we do that? We sin and we do our lies and our half-truths and we think, hey, you know, we're getting away with it. Everything's fine. Well, at some point, wham, God's going to hit you to get your attention. It might be years later, but at some point it will. And here's David. Okay, some of us may have been at this point, at rock bottom. Maybe we've even had people turn against us, like David has his men turning against him. Let's turn a moment to Exodus chapter 17. This morning we looked at all kinds of passages, but uh, here's this one. <clears throat> Exodus 17. You remember there in verses 1 and following, we see that Israel, right, they're journeying from the crossing of the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, and they're along the way. They come to Rephidim, and there's no water. And people say, Moses, what are you doing? How come you didn't give us water? And Moses is like, hey, you know, I'm just going wherever God tells us to go. You know, why are you blaming me? Okay, well, notice verse 4. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They're about ready to stone me. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? The men are wanting to stone Moses, and here now David. And look at verses 8 and following. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. It's kind of interesting how this idea of stoning the leader uh, is in the context of the Amalekites. Remember, this is what Moses raises his arms and Aaron and Hur hold up his arms as he prays and Joshua fights and all that. This is why I said in chapter 27, I think it was okay for David to fight against the Amalekites. All right. Well, notice how the verse ends as we come back here to 1 Samuel. And if you're paying attention, you would say, finally. The last time we see anything about David and God is chapter 26. For the last three chapters and now five, six verses, you don't see David praying to God, talking to God, asking anything about and for God, from God, any of these things, right? He, he, God's not there in David's life. 
He's living by fear. Finally, he turns to the Lord. About time, you might say. And isn't that often the case? Right? We, we get into our sinful behaviors and, and uh, you know, we should have turned to the Lord a long time before. But it isn't until we're at rock bottom that we finally say, oh yeah, okay, God, can you help me please? Forgive me for my sin. We should have turned long before that. Okay, but in God's grace, David finally does. And remember, we're trying to contrast Saul and David. Saul turned to the Lord. But he did not persist when God did not answer, and he went to a witch. David here finally turns to the Lord, and he does it sincerely. And of course, this is the best thing for us to do. Even when we have fallen into sin, and maybe you could say especially when we've fallen into sin, turn to the Lord. Okay? Even in the midst of his discipline, his punishment, Turn to the Lord. This is our best and really only solution to our troubles. But remember, again contrasting Saul and David, <clears throat> Saul treated God like a genie. Saul treated God like Tylenol. Pop one in, half hour later, everything's fine, right? No. Okay. That is not how we need to treat God. David is treating God rightly. Finally, he's turning to the Lord. He is seeking the Lord, seeking his help, because he is his only hope. So there's much for us to learn here, here in these ways. So let's continue then. Verse 7, <clears throat> Then David said to Abiathar the priest, to Himelech's son, Please bring near uh, here to me. Uh, excuse me. Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. All right, pretty straightforward. Um, but remember, the ephod would have had the Urim and Thummim. And remember, Abiathar came to David after Saul killed all the priests in Nob. And so David has this access to God in a way that Saul didn't. And so come and bring it. Abiathar listened. So verse 8. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. All right. Again, pretty straightforward here. David asked God what to do. Note the ask theme. Okay. Saul asks the witch. David asks God in the end. And note the name of God that is used here, Yahweh. Hey, David's covenant Lord, the one who had entered into relationship with David, the one that David had been thumbing his nose at for the last 16 months. But he turns to the Lord and he asks, shall I go after them? Now, remember Urim and Thummim, typically it's a yes or no kind of question. So should I go after them? Yeah. Okay. Shall I find them? Yes. So it's consistent with Urim and Thummim, even though that isn't mentioned specifically. Okay. Now, again, think about this. <laughs> Possibly, David's a week behind. Maybe it's just a few days behind. We'll have a clue here in a bit. Okay? But even if he's just a day or two behind, um, nomadic raiders can move. They can disappear in a hurry. David needs help. 
And so where should I go? And David is, is given this answer here at the end of the verse. Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Now, God doesn't say, hey, you know, head east, southeast, or, you know, go this way for five miles and then turn right. I mean, we don't get any of that. But pursue them, and you will be successful. Isn't that how God often works with us? He doesn't give us specific answers, but he gives us general answers in his word. Trust him, live by faith. Okay. And note that, that Yahweh's answer here is very emphatic. Uh, the New King James says, surely overtake them. And that's the verb overtake twice, to overtake, overtake. And then the last one also, recover, recover. And the New King James says, without fail, recover. Your translation may translate that word as deliver, um, but it's, it's repeated. And so, no, God's answer is an emphatic yes, basically. Remember, Saul didn't get an answer. Okay, note the contrast. Verse 9. <clears throat> so David went, he and, his, and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the broke base or where those stayed who were left behind. All right. Um, I would assume they left immediately. Okay? Maybe they had enough time to go to the bathroom and put their stuff on their back and they're out of there, you know, five minutes later or something. You, again, remember, you're chasing after your family. And here's where I want you to look at the map a moment. On this colored map that I've given to you, if you look at the land of the 12 tribes side, okay, or again, if you have another one, if you find Ziklag there and... Um, uh, the southern part of Israel, uh, you see Beersheba, and then right there you see that blue line, some dots and lines and such there, that's the brook Basor, and see how it flows westward and then northwestward up to Gaza. This is the brook. So depending on where they went, they probably went somewhere 12 to 15 miles from Ziklag to this brook. So think about that a moment. Hey, they don't have a car, or, you know, helicopters or any of these kind of things, right? They had walked certainly from uh, Aphek till close to Ziklag. Maybe they ran the rest of the way as they saw the smoke. <clears throat> and now, surely they're moving as fast as they can these roughly, whatever, 13, 14 miles from Ziklag to the brook which means in three days they traveled at least 60, maybe 70 miles on foot, and some of it running. Let's bring in verse 10 now. It says, But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Basor. All right, now one commentator said that, that the ravine there was, was big enough that it would be hard to ford just normally, and if it's possibly in flood stage, right, it's not uncommon for wars to take place during the spring and summer months and so forth. So maybe the water was high. We don't know those details. We're not told. But they can't cross over, these 200. So again, think about this. If they go from Ziklag to this point, and you figure they traveled at least 7 to 10 miles probably before they got to Ziklag, so they may have gone upwards of 20 miles or, or more on that day and probably ran a good part of that 
you can understand why these 200 are like, we can't cross. Okay. And the 400 continue on. Now let me pause here a moment, beginning in verse 9 especially, though you could go back before and even after this, but in verses 9 to 13, the conjunction could be translated then or next every time, um, 14 times altogether. Um, just all this action, one thing after another, right? You know, the music's swelling, you know, the scenes aren't seven or eight seconds at a time before the camera shifts, you know, it's every two or three seconds kind of thing. Okay. Again, you can understand why. So verse 11, then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate and they let him drink water. Okay, you could translate all those conjunctions as then in the verse. So here they are and they're trying to track down these raiders and they come across this Egyptian Surely he had been lying on the ground. He was sick. He hadn't eaten for a few days. Uh, he's half dead. And um, they bring him to David. And uh, he can't respond right away until he recovers his strength. So you give him food, give him water. Okay? And uh, again, you see how verse 11 is sufficient knowledge? Now let's read verse 12. Why have this? And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins so when he had eaten his strength came back to him for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights now obviously we have more information right you don't need that information to get the point so why is it here well i think combined with what we're going to see later in the chapter this is actually a reflection on david's character you remember Saul, when he got the news, he just, you know, he laid down and they, they had to coax him to eat. Okay. Do you see the difference with David? Here is a man who could give him some intel, possibly, and David is going to patiently wait for this man to recover his strength. Do you see the kind of man that David is in treating this Egyptian slave? We're going to see the kind of man, man David is later in the chapter, too. So it's quite possible, again, we're, we're, we're guessing here, but it is consistent that the reason why this verse is given, when we don't really need it, is to highlight the character of David. For all of his faults, for all of his sins, he, he was a good man, man after God's own heart. So David here then gives them all these nutritious things. Maybe they have to wait an hour or something like that for the man to eat and drink and finally have enough uh, energy to speak. Okay. And obviously we're given the details here. It's three days and three nights without food and water and he was also sick. Okay. So verse 13. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. Now, right there, we're like, oh, wow. <laughs> this is kind of amazing, right? <clears throat> so David questions him. He finally responds, and he says, I'm a slave of an Amalekite. Likely, this man was stolen from his family by the Amalekites on a raid there. And because he got sick, do you see the contrast? Hey, they just left him to die. 
David is nourishing the man. The Amalekites are leaving him to die. So much for caring for him. And so verse 14 then, we made an invasion of the southern area of the Carathites and the territory which belonged to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned the Ziklag with fire. Ha! Now David knows what we knew back in verse 1 and verse 2. Okay. Again, they may have had some clues, but now they know. The Amalekites are the ones who attack southern Judah and southern Philistia. Now, isn't it interesting, going back to verses 1 and 3, it says that Ziklag was burned. Here again, it says Ziklag was burned, but it doesn't say anything else about any other place being burned. Now, maybe they just emphasize Ziklag because David being there. Um, but maybe only Ziklag was burned. We can't say definitively, but again, maybe this is an indication. Hey, <coughs> David... Right? Your sin will find you out. It's Ziklag that's burned, not these other places. Oh, they're attacked too, but Ziklag is burned. So verse 15, And David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. Hey, my master, that's Adoni. Remember from Psalm 110, I talked about that. Um, so anyway, David asks, do you know where they're going? He says, yes, I do. Protect me and I'll tell you. And uh, it doesn't clearly say the rest of the chapter, but presumably David did. Okay. He does not hand him over. And so notice now, David is trusting in a man who helped kidnap his family. He is trusting in a man who may have struck the match so to speak, to burn down his house. All this is quite amazing, isn't it? Let's think of a few things here. Remember that David, when he attacked the Amalekites, he killed everyone, men, women, children. Not one of David's and the men's families were killed. Not one person. We'll see that emphasized in the next section, but we've already seen that information here. No one was killed, even though David killed everybody. This is why I think it's probably true the Amalekites are retaliating, but that's not really the point. The point is, God is getting David's attention. He got his attention, finally, in verse 6. Note also this, David had no clue which way to go, other than to say he probably figured they went south, but that's a big area. But God led him to a man who was lying on the ground. It's like a needle in the haystack. Hey, many of us hunt or have been hunting. You go out in the woods, you can pass by within a yard or two of something and not see it. Hey. If you're out in a field, especially with tall grasses or something like that, you can easily miss things. Remember, this is the brook Basor. We don't know how much further beyond Basor it was. Maybe it was getting more into a desert-like area. and Maybe you'd see a hump in the sand, you know, kind of some dark over there. But they still could be surrounded by a bunch of trees and vegetation. The point is, God led him directly to this man. This didn't just happen by chance. 
plus the small event of discarding this sick slave led to a huge blessing for David and his men. All this is part of God's providence. And so even though God brought hardship to David for his sin, do we see God's grace to David here in this way? By bringing him to this Egyptian slave. Again, do you see the principles behind all of that? Okay. God will bring calamities, maybe not this to this degree, but he'll bring hardships of some kind in our lives when we sin. But if we're one of his, he also is going to bring gracious and good things, bringing us help and hope and blessing. Okay. So I mentioned this last week. We don't have to wait for Paul to say, let's not sin that grace may abound. Okay? But you see how grace is abounding even with David's sin. He does the same with us. God's grace overcomes our sin. This obviously is the hope of the gospel, but it's also our hope in our sanctification. And so, here is our our broader point in this section. But let me then bring it together here and bring us to a conclusion tonight by reminding us that these last chapters are contrasting David and Saul. Saul sought God, sort of. David does seek God. God ignores Saul because he had persisted in his sin. God hears David and answers him because of of David's faith in God. Saul and his family are going to end up dead. David and his family are spared and rescued. So, not in every way, but in this way, let's follow in David's footsteps. When we do hit rock bottom and God is getting our attention, like David, let's turn to the Lord. Let's trust him. Let's obey him. Not like Saul and turn to some necromancer or horoscope or our lucky socks. You know, turn to the Lord. And then also remember this broader point. The author is saying, we want David as our king. We don't want Saul as our king. But aren't we seeing in these last chapters that we don't even want David as our king? We want God as our king. We want the son of David as our king. David leads to oppression for his people. David leads to kidnapping, to fear. But Jesus doesn't. And so note again here, the point of 1 Samuel 8 rises to the top once again. Trust in God, not man. Especially when we're told ad nauseum in election season to trust a man. All right, well, we're going to stop here in the middle, and we'll look at the rest of this, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you that you, again, have given us your word and preserved it here for us. We thank you for uh, this story of David, things that we can learn from it. We are so thankful, Lord, that uh, uh, you care for us enough to bring us hardships when we sin. You don't just let us do our own thing. Uh, You may not do it right away, but we are thankful, Lord, that you bring hardships in our lives to turn us away 
from our sinful, idolatrous behaviors and thoughts, that we might turn back to you. We thank you for that. But we're thankful, Lord, that even in spite of our sin, there's so many good things you bring our way. And uh, as we've seen that with David, help us to reflect on how you've done that for us. In the midst of our own sin, seeing your grace to us, certainly in our initial salvation, but even in the day-to-day sanctification. Lord, we um, uh, pray that you would help us not to wait 16 months to finally turn to you or whatever the time frame is. Help us, Lord, to live by faith, to walk by faith, and uh, to trust you in all things. Um, And so, Lord, we... um, Again, thank you for, for this message, for your word, and this story to help us to see it. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.